The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Where am I? Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edges of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. We are now in Deuteronomy chapter 7 still, but we're in verses 9 through 16. This is entitled, The Covenant and the Mercy. Verse 9, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. In our verses today, Moses refers to the covenant and the mercy and that the Lord swore to Israel's fathers. When we read something like that, as we have seen in previous sermons, it isn't always easy to know what fathers are being referred to. Scholars make their analyses, and each presents the case as to what he believes is being said. At times, one case seems as possible as another, and a third just as likely as the first two. The same is true with what Moses says today. It can be confusing because there are various ways that the term fathers can be defined. Is it those who received the law? Is it the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or is it all of them or some other group? Sometimes deciding is made easier by later passages in the Bible, and sometimes they may muddy the waters to us even more. Not because the word is conflicted, but because we are. This is especially true because we may come at the Bible with our own presuppositions. If so, we will refuse to see what is otherwise plain and obvious. I'm certainly as guilty of this as anyone else. There are certain things I believe about God, about his word, and about his relationships with various people at various times. Because of that, I'm sure that my judgment is, in one point or another, clouded. I would hope that this is not the case, but if it is, I wouldn't be able to identify it myself very easily. And none of us could. Our text verse comes from Luke chapter 1. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Did you see any similarities in those words to the sermon text we read just a minute ago? If so, how are you going to analyze what is said in one passage in relation to what is said in the other? Did the church replace Israel? Is there one covenant for Israel and another for Gentiles? Why does one speak of a land grant and the other doesn't? Does the promise of land go hand in hand with the other promises to Israel? 
Can it be separated from them? Are the Gentiles included in any land grant? On and on, we have to evaluate the word as best as we can. We can't ignore any of it, but we have to consider it in relation to what the Lord intends. It's not always that easy. And one error in analysis can lead to many others. As always, what I've evaluated for you to consider today should be supplemented by your own study and consideration. It's important because this is God's word. As such, it presents what he has done, intends to do, and to whom he intends to do it at any given time. We all fit into the picture somewhere, but we don't fit into it everywhere. So keeping things in their context is necessary. In understanding the context, we can then determine what God will do for us and with us. Isn't that exciting? It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, there is a chiastic structure to verses 9 through 12 that I plucked out of those verses the day that this sermon got typed, so that you're aware of it. Here it is. Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 12, the covenant and the mercy. I entitled this a promise and a warning. Our first part of the chiasm, A, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy. A, at the bottom, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy. B, for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. B, at the bottom, therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. C, and he repays those who hate him to their face. C, he will repay him to his face. And the anchor is, he will not be slack with him who hates him. With this in view, our first thought today, therefore you shall keep the commandment, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God. Ve'yadata ki Yehovah Elohecha hu ha-Elohim. And know for Yehovah your God, he, the God. The words are emphatic, but the emphasis is left out of English translations. There is a definite article before the word God. In other words, Moses is stating unambiguously that not only is Jehovah Israel's God, but he is the God. Now, your translation that is sitting in front of you in your lap does not have the word the before God. You should probably put it there. This is one of only five times in the book of Deuteronomy that the definite article is placed before the word Elohim, or God, in this exact manner. It was seen twice in chapter 4, and it will be seen once in chapter 10, and once in chapter 33. As Moses says, he is the God, and as simple logic tells us that there can only be one God, meaning in the sense of the creator God and not a lesser God, then this one God is Jehovah. That this is evident is understood from the theological points known as the 12 first principles. If you want to know all 12 of them, go back and watch Genesis 1-1 sermon that we did years ago, and I go through all 12 of them. But for today, points 7 and 8. Point 7, only necessary being can cause a contingent being. This is known as the positive principle of modality. What it means is that there is a being that cannot not exist. He must exist. As we exist, and as we are certainly not necessary, but rather are created beings, then God must exist. The principle is reducible to the undeniable. Understanding this, we then turn to point eight. Point eight says, necessary being cannot cause a necessary being. This is known as the negative principle of modality. Again, the principle is undeniable. Only one necessary being can exist. Any being which exists apart from a necessary being is contingent and could not exist. It is self-evident. In other words, because a necessary being must exist, point seven, and because only he is necessary, then only he is God. Without giving the logical explanation for it, this is what Moses is conveying to the people of Israel. His words simply proclaim that it is true, and they ask us to logically consider them as we have done, and to accept that if Jehovah is that necessary being, then he is the God. That thought brings in the obvious next thought, though. How do we tell if Jehovah is that necessary being? Can it be some other God that some other culture or another follows? How do we find out? The gravity of getting this wrong is such that only a fool would not want to be sure. 
The answer is to be found in several logical steps. The first would be to contemplate all 12 of the first principles. In understanding them, it is possible to weed out all, all of the false gods and also the false presentations of the true God, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses. But that only eliminates, it does not confirm. And so, man next evaluates whatever has not been eliminated, which is the God of the Bible, Jehovah. We can know that all other gods are false, but that does not prove that Jehovah is the God. In comparing scripture with logic, we will find that nothing about the God of the Bible is contrary to logic. From there, we can go further and see that not only is the God presented in the Bible supported by such logic, but he goes beyond it, telling us what he will do before it comes to pass, meaning he gives us the prophetic word. This prophetic word includes what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do with a particular group of people, Israel. Thus, the God of the Bible not only reveals himself as a possible being of the true God, but he then confirms that possibility through his actions. One of those actions which came through Israel is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In that, nothing is contrary to the logical principles which have been set forth. It was also spoken of in advance, and I would say many, many times in advance, and it is therefore a confirmation of who Jehovah is and of the world that he is given. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we have a sound and a reasonable faith, and this continues to be true for Israel, even though Israel rejected him. Why? Because Jehovah is, verse 9 continues, the faithful God, Ha'el Ha'ne'eman, the God, the faithful. I said that Ha Elohim, or the God, is seen just five times in Deuteronomy. I was referring to that exact expression. Here, there is again an article before El, or God. This is one of just two times that this expression is used in Deuteronomy, once here and once again in chapter 10. Moses then qualifies that by saying Ha Ne'eman, or the faithful. The word signifies to confirm or to support. In other words, God is faithful confirming his words. They are to be trusted. In the case of Israel, what will be said in the coming words and verses indicates that Israel could be and indeed will be cut off for disobedience. But we find elsewhere that this is never permanent. God's covenant with them will stand even in their breaking of it. He will never break his own side of this covenant. For now, Moses continues describing the God. Verse 9 going on, who keeps covenant and mercy. Shomer haberit veha chesed, keeping the covenant and the loyal love. It is tragic how out of 27 translations referred to for this sermon, only one included the definite articles, the covenant and the mercy. Moses is being especially careful to describe the actions of Jehovah and how they relate to Israel. The use of the article before the verb mercy gives it the force of an adjective, showing that he is to be trusted because it is his very nature. We talked about that on Thursday night, and here it is in the sermon. He will keep the loyalty to his mercy faithfully. Verse 9 continues, For a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Le ohava u le shomere mitzvotav le elef dor. To those who love him and keep his commandments to the thousandth generation. This is similar to the second commandment found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There is a difference in this verse, though, which very few translations pick up on. The word generations is in the singular, to the thousandth generation. It is as if Moses is looking ahead in time and anticipating the faithfulness of God, counting each generation and seeing that his loving kindness is not missing toward even one of them. However, verse 10, and he repays those who hate him. There are those who hate God and there are those who hate God. Some hate him for whatever reason they think is justified. They may hate him because he took away a beloved spouse or a child. They may hate him because they lost a great fortune, or they may hate him because they were born crippled. People find their own reasons that God is to be hated based on who they are, meaning that they feel they are deserving of better. Thus, their hatred of him ultimately demonstrates that they believe it is they 
and not he who is the center of the universe. Then there are those who hate God not explicitly, but implicitly. They may say, yes, I just love God. He and I are in real tight. But it is a lie, because they don't obey his precepts, whatever they may be, demonstrating that they have no love for him. If one has no love for God, they by default hate God. There are not the usual gradations of love and hate that we may express towards a person we can see, touch, and so on. This doesn't mean, however, that someone who exactingly fulfills God's law loves him, nor does it mean that someone who fails to exactingly fulfill God's law hates him. David failed to fulfill the law, didn't he? And yet his love of God is revealed throughout his life, throughout his actions, throughout his writings, and so on. And the Lord's love for him is seen as well. The Pharisees and Sadducees meticulously kept the law, and yet they had no love for God. And the words of Jesus, who is God, shows that the Lord had no love for them as well. Because of these things, the words of this passage need to be considered in their proper context, which is a heart relationship towards the Lord and a heart attitude towards his law. When the hatred toward God is seen, either actively or implicitly, he will repay them, verse 10 going on, to their face to destroy them. It is debated what el panav, or to their face, means. Some views are openly and publicly, or at once, or in their lifetime. But it is evident that many who hate the Lord, whether explicitly or implicitly, lived long, trouble-free lives. Job speaks about that. What Moses is surely conveying is that man will be judged, and he will personally know that his judgment is from God, regardless of the day that it comes. This is certain because Moses next says, verse 10, going on, he will not be slack with him who hates him. These words make it sound like the earlier option of the Lord's judgment coming at once is the most likely. However, the alacrity of the Lord is not conditioned on our expectations, but on his foreknowledge, wisdom, and purpose. Peter makes this evident in 2 Peter 3. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We may look at the promise of the Lord to repay an offense to someone's face as only fulfilled if it comes in his life, but that is because we want justice in that manner. But to God, that is unnecessary. It is he who will judge, and he will do so in a manner which is in the most perfect way to be executed. And how good that is for many of us who openly rebelled against God for much of our lives. And yet, that open rebellion was met with the judgment of grace and mercy. It is judgment nonetheless, but it was judgment brought down upon his son in our place. Can anyone say that the Apostle Paul had his hatred of the Lord repaid in the way we expected from our reading of Deuteronomy chapter 7? Probably not. Despite his zeal for the law, which he admits in both Acts and in the book of Philippians, it cannot be said that he loved the Lord because the law foretold of the coming of Jesus Christ. It told what he would be like, what he would do, how he would do it, and so on. And yet Paul rejected the obvious when Christ came. In rejecting Christ, he demonstrated hatred toward the Lord. The repayment of that, at least for Paul, was one of the most incredible displays of before your face that anyone could ever imagine. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. How the Lord handles his affairs is solely up to the Lord. How he repays any given person is also solely up to him. As Paul says elsewhere, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? The Lord will have mercy on whom he has mercy, but that mercy is still in the form of judgment. No infraction against him will be treated otherwise, but the mercy on those who received it is taken out as judgment on another who did not. Either way, verse 10 continues, he will repay him to his face. No person's hatred of God will go unpunished. 
It may appear that way when we see the wicked and corrupt continuously getting away with their actions like we see in the world today, but they are actually only heaping up greater guilt for the day of their judgment, whenever it will be, and in whatever manner he determines for it to come about. For those who truly wish to please the Lord and not see judgment either in themselves or in a substitute, Moses implores the people, Oh, thank heaven! It's time for verse 711. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments. The New King James Version gets it right this time. The word commandment is singular, not plural. The words statutes and judgments are plural, and they are also prefixed by definite articles. There is the duty of the law, meaning the commandment, and then there are the statutes and the judgments which define that law and which comprise it. Moses is giving the law with its many details in anticipation of the people hearing and responding. As he next says, verse 11 going on, which I command you today to observe them. These words show quite clearly that hating the Lord can be either active or passive. In failing to observe the commands, it demonstrates a hatred toward the Lord. But again, and as we already saw, this is not to be taken in the absolute sense, nor is it necessarily to be taken in the reciprocal either. Just because someone observes the law, it does not mean they love the Lord. It may be a self-love, looking for approval from others. And just because someone fails to observe the law perfectly, it does not mean that his heart does not love the Lord. In both, the attitude of the heart is what is considered. This is true throughout the rest of the Bible. For example, from the book of Isaiah, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Now remember, these sacrifices are things that are mandated under the law says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? The answer is that the Lord required them in the law, but he did so in the context of what we are looking at today, faithful observance, not rote observance. Isaiah goes on to speak of the feasts, the Sabbaths, the assemblies, all being repulsive to the Lord because the people's hands were tainted with blood and their lives were filled with evil doings. The Lord your God, he is the God. He is ever faithful and true. Of his great deeds we shall forever applaud when he at last all things makes new. He keeps the covenant and the mercy. He shall never forget those who trust in him. Let there be no controversy because of the Lord. The devil is done in. No longer does Satan have the power to tear God's people away from him. Christ is our protection and our high tower. Because of Christ our Lord, the devil is done in. Our second thought today, which he swore to your fathers, is verses 12 through 16. Verse 12, then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them. And it shall be following after you listen. It is a somewhat rare word, ekhev. In Deuteronomy, it will only be seen here and in the next chapter. It speaks of consequence, and so the word because is fine. But the word's etymology will help you to understand what is being conveyed. It comes from the verb akhav, meaning the hind part, or following after. That comes from the noun akhev, meaning the heel, or a footprint. At times, such as in Psalm 19, it is translated as a reward. What Moses is conveying is that one thing will be the consequence of the other. Just as there is anticipated repayment for those who hate him, there is expected reward for those who heed, demonstrating that they love him. Moses gives the commandment and the statutes and the judgments. From there, the people listen, meaning they hearken to the judgments and they keep and do them. You, all, it is plural, listen. And you, all, it is plural, keep and do. Then, in the footprints of that action, verse 12 continues, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. The words revert from the plural to the singular. The Lord your, singular, God, will keep with you, singular, the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your, singular, fathers. The wording going from the plural to the singular is precise and it is beautiful. Israel can expect the reward, but they cannot expect it if the people pursued the word willy-nilly. This group does and this group doesn't, but who cares? The people, all of them, must listen, keep, and do. In this, the people, Israel, 
will receive the blessing. One can see the rejection of Jesus Christ as an example. Some of Israel received him, didn't they? That's all found in the book of Acts. But the people, all of them, did not. The blessing for corporate Israel was not received. That is why it repeats the same phrase as in verse 9, but which is translated correctly by the New King James Version this time. Haberit ve'et hachesed, the covenant and the mercy. It is this which Moses says, which he swore to your fathers. This then is ultimately speaking of the covenant of Messiah and the loyal love which stems from him. This was never truly realized in Israel. And the blessings they received, as seen in Scripture, were only shadowy reflections of what was promised, and which will ultimately come to pass at some future point when they acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. We can be absolutely certain that this is correct because it is exactly what Zechariah prophesied by the Holy Spirit in our text verse today, and which reverts all the way back to Abraham. This is not merely speaking of the Mosaic Covenant but the fulfillment of it in Christ, and thus the promised blessing to all peoples which was made to Abraham. Israel will receive that someday because Moses is speaking not to the Gentile world, but to Israel alone. In the Song of Moses of chapter 32, however, Moses says the following, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. One could argue that this is only speaking of Gentiles because the word with is inserted. Here's what it says without the word with. Rejoice, O Gentiles, his people. But Paul repeats that in Romans 15.10, and he clearly indicates that with is to be understood in Deuteronomy. Moses next says what this reaction of the Lord will be. Verse 13, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. The love follows on from the promise to Abraham. Here's what it said back in Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sandwiches on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Israel would receive the promise of Abraham because it was ordained to be so. The inclusion of love here signifies that they are obedient to the words of Moses and accepting of the promise based on that. In other words, the love will be displayed when they receive the one whom the commandment anticipates. Until then, the love is imperfect and conditional. At some point, it will be a complete and fully realized love. Coming soon to a millennial reign near you. Verse 13 continues, He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land. The two are necessarily stated together to show blessing upon blessing. In impoverished nations, the rate of babies being born normally does not decrease. However, without the fruit of the land, it becomes a double curse rather than a blessing. And so to mention the fruit of the land implies anticipated health to the fruit of the womb. The fruit of the land is then further explained as, verse 13 going on, your grain and your new wine and your oil. Here, Moses promises blessing upon the dagon, or grain. That comes from daga, meaning to multiply or increase. Also, the tirosh, or new wine, which comes from yarash, meaning to take possession of or inherit. Thus, it is fresh, unfermented wine. And also, the yitzhar, or fresh oil. That is from sohar, or midday. Thus, it is as if oil that produces light. It's so clean and clear. Verse 13 continues, the increase of your cattle. The word translated as increase is sheger. It is only seen in Exodus 13 and four times in the book of Deuteronomy. It signifies offspring of beasts. The word translated as cattle comes from a root signifying to learn. Thus, Moses is referring to animals which are tamed and yoked, learning to be obedient to their master. Verse 13 continues, and the offspring of your flock. Here the word offspring, ashtorot, is a rare plural word. It is introduced here, and it will only be seen three more times in the book of Deuteronomy. It comes from a root signifying to either be or become rich. Thus, in their multiplication, one amasses wealth. These blessings are promised to the people, but more, they are promised to be, verse 13 going on, in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. This is the greatest of all of the promises, even though it seems that it's just tacked on to the end of this verse as an afterthought. The land promise is what makes the rest of the blessings possible. 
And that land promise is only possible if the people are living in accord with the Lord, as Moses puts forth in this passage. At times, the people lived in the land while suffering under deprivation, hostility from their enemies, and so on. At other times, the people were exiled from the land. In this, they were cut off from all but the most basic covenant promises, that of being kept as a people. And yes, they have been kept as a people now for 2,000 years since their last exile. However, while in the land, they could, if they were obedient to the word in a proper, heart-directed way, experience these promised blessings of the Lord. Understanding this, we again see that the exile of Israel and all of the woes that have come upon them are because they failed to heed the word. If the Lord is God, and indeed he is, then their failure to receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah is what brought all of the calamity upon them that they have experienced for 2,000 years. The Mosaic Covenant is incomplete without the coming of Christ, and in his coming, it is fulfilled in him. Thus, all of these promises are denied to Israel in their fullest sense until they realize this and call out to him. When they do, verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. As has been noted at times, these promises came upon Israel in a limited way and for a limited time. During the reign of Solomon, this was as close to being realized as at any other time in scripture, but it was still an imperfect blessing even then. Solomon departed from the Lord and trouble ensued. One could argue then that this is only a hopeful anticipation which is never fully realized. And replacement theologians certainly say that. They say, well, the church has replaced Israel. That will never be realized in Israel. That is not the case. This is especially so because in the coming of Christ, the people of the church are on an equal status with the Jews, all being one in Christ. However, that is not what this is referring to. It is referring to the status of Israel among all peoples. That is not a promise which is set aside in the coming of Christ and their acceptance of him. Rather, it is the fulfillment of this promise right now. The countless promises of the messianic blessings upon the people of the land of Israel have never been fulfilled, but they will come to pass. Israel being above all peoples in this capacity is seen again and again and again in scripture. One obvious example is found in Zechariah chapter 14. Here's what it says there. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The promises have come to pass during Israel's infrequent times of obedience, but they shall come to pass in their fullness in Israel's acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus. And, and Moses next says, verse 14 going on, there shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Again, as with verse 13, Moses promises that the blessings of or toward the womb will be assured. This will be upon both males and females and upon both man and beast. Here the word is akar. It signifies being barren. And it is almost always referring to the barren womb of a woman. However, in the case of a man, it signifies being sterile. The words of this verse follow after the earlier promise made in Exodus chapter 23. Here it said, No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Throughout the Bible, the ability to procreate is considered a blessing, and to not be able to is considered exactly the opposite. It was a cause of shame. Moses promises that this will never be the case to the people who are faithfully obedient to the commandment of the Lord. Further, verse 15, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness. Here's another new word, holy, or sickness. It signifies any malady, anxiety, disease, or even grief that a person may experience. It is used when speaking of Christ and of the people of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with that word holy grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
It certainly can't be said that there was any time in all of Israel's history that this could be considered as truly fulfilled. And yet, the words of Moses say that such a state is anticipated in rightful obedience to the law. But because this state was not realized before Christ's coming, as is clearly evidenced from Isaiah chapter 53, and because it says that Christ bore our griefs, then it again shows where the disconnect for Israel stands in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Such an ideal time is promised in the writings of the prophets when Christ dwells among Israel for 1,000 years. However, the final realization of this is actually stated towards the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is the ultimate point of Christ's coming. It isn't just an earthly reign of Christ among Israel, but an eternal heavenly reign of Christ among all of the redeemed of all of humanity. For now, Moses says, verse 15 continues, and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known. Here's another new word, madveh, or disease. It will only be seen here and in Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's the curses, the blessings and the curses chapter. The word comes from davah, which is used in Leviticus 12, verse 2, to signify a state of uncleanness which defiles a woman. Thus, one can assume the diseases mentioned here are such that a person would become defiled. The term, the diseases of Egypt, is specifically mentioned as such three times in the Bible. The first was in Exodus 15, where it was used with a different word, machale. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the machale, the diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This now is the second time the diseases of Egypt are mentioned, using this new word instead. The Lord promises to withhold such diseases from the people in their faithful compliance to the commands now given. What is possible is that the sanitary laws which are found within the law would ostensibly prevent these. In not obeying the law, this would be the inevitable result of their disobedience. Whether this is correct or not, the people had known these diseases, and Moses promises that they will know them no more if they are faithfully obedient. Instead, verse 15 continues, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Those who hate the Jews would also naturally hate the practices of the Jews. As this is so, then the diseases prevented by adherence to the law would naturally cling to them. Thus, this does not necessarily mean the Lord actively places them on their enemies, but it occurs because of their own rebellion against what is contained within the law itself. This is obviously conjecture, but the many washings and inspections for skin ailments, molds, and the like, as well as the laws for sexual morality, does point to a cleanly society. And this would only be the case through obedience to what the law prescribes for such things. And, as I said, there is one more specific reference to the diseases of Egypt. It uses the same word as here, and it is also found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sickness. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. In adherence to the law, these diseases would be kept from them. In failing to observe the law, the diseases would cling to them. One can hardly think that anything but the meticulous care of the hygiene and sexually moral verses of Leviticus being adhered to or not adhered to would bring about the stated result of the words of Moses. As those laws would be shunned by the inhabitants of the land, it is another reason for what Moses next says. Verse 16, also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Ve'akalta et hal ha'amim, and you shall eat up all the peoples. Moses was probably thinking of the disaster of their first time at the door of Canaan. When the twelve spies were sent to inspect the land upon their return, a bad report was sent among the congregation so that they began to rebel. 
at that time, Joshua and Caleb called out, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They called the inhabitants their bread. Here Moses says the people are to eat up the inhabitants. Thus it means to utterly consume them like bread. In this, he says, verse 16 continues, your eyes shall have no pity on them. This takes us back to verse 2, where it said, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. The reasons for this are many, but one of them must be tied to the last verse. In being unclean, they would bring their unclean habits among Israel. The very diseases the Lord was to keep them from would inflict them. This would be because their own morals would become slack. Their own adherence to the law would wane, and so on. Another obvious reason completes our words today. Verse 16 finishes with, Nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. In allowing the inhabitants to live, an inevitable result would be departing from the Lord and serving other gods. It already happened to them more than once outside of the land. Once they were happily settled into the land, it would be sure to come about, just as the rest of the Old Testament testifies to. In this, there would be sin heaped upon sin. The people would first disobey the command to consume the inhabitants, and then they would resultingly start to serve their gods. One step would lead naturally to another because sin, as it notes, is a mokesh, or snare. That word comes from yakosh, meaning to lure or lay bait. In other words, the people would actually be baiting themselves into sin by committing the first sin of failing to do as instructed. There is never a time that sin doesn't infect more than just the initial act. It will always spread beyond itself in some way or another. The best way to understand that is to simply look at what occurred in Eden. The bait was laid, the trap was set, and man sinned. But that one sin didn't just have one negative effect, did it? Rather, through that one sin, every single evil thing that we have ever faced in all of human existence arose. This is how sin works. And the tool by which it has its hold on us is the law. Not that the law is bad, but that the law allows for sin to take place. Our own evil desires trap us. We disobey the law, and sin is the result. This is why Jesus is so very important to us. The law was given. The law was violated and sin entered the picture. But with the entrance of that sin came death, and that death is transmitted to all people. As we continue to see week after week, the law of Moses does not solve that problem. It only magnifies it. It is like a mirror reflecting back on us all of our defects. But in Christ, the law reflects back only the purity of God's perfection. Without sin, the law highlights his perfect goodness. It radiates it out like a beacon for us to come and to participate in. And so, what do we do? We come to Christ and His perfection covers us. When we are in Christ, we can look at the mirror and only see His perfection. And that is what God sees as well. The law, this giant, impossible body of writings, can no longer condemn us because we are imputed His righteousness. That is the sweetest deal of all. Now, when we look at the law, we can see the greatness of what God has done. Israel will too someday. For now, we are continuing on through this book, seeing where they failed and thus honestly seeing where we too fail. Let us remember this and let us come to Christ and participate in the ultimate victory of God's people. May it be so for you and may it be today. Amen. Amen. The Bible says that we have sin. I just went through how that came about. Man sinned against God. Man fell. And that sin is transferred to every person on this planet because it transfers from father to son or daughter. Father to son or daughter. And every person on this planet has a human father, every single one of them. But God, at the time of Abraham, gave Abraham a picture, a sign, circumcision. He says, all of your males shall be circumcised on the eighth day. And that was a picture of the coming Christ. God is going to do something in the stream of human existence. He's going to give us a human being without a human father because he is the father. God entered into the womb of Mary. So this child is fully human because his mother is human. 
but this child is also God because his father is God. Everybody see that? And so the sin is cut. The picture is fulfilled. Sin no longer travels from father to child. And when you come to Jesus Christ, you are incorporated into that family, and the sin line is cut in you. Sin is no longer imputed. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, God is no longer counting our sins against us. Why? Because we're not under law. Law is how sin is transmitted. When you have a law, you break the law, sin is transmitted. Without law, there can be no imputation of sin. That doesn't mean we can go out and do anything we want. We talked about that on Thursday. That's called license, and we don't have license to go out and do evil. But if we do, we are not imputed that sin. Thank God for Jesus Christ, because if we didn't have that non-imputation of sin, every time we sin, which is about every two seconds of our life in our thoughts and in our deeds, we would lose our salvation. But because we're not imputed sin, we are under grace and we are saved, and hence we are saved forever. Not three ever, but forever. It is eternal. Okay? Please call on Jesus Christ. I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ died for my sins, implying I'm a sinner. I believe that he was buried, meaning he was dead. And I believe that he came out of the grave, proving he had no sin of his own. And so the only thing left in that grave is your sin. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Call on Jesus Christ today and be reconciled to God through his precious shed blood. Our closing verse comes from 2 Corinthians 5. It's verses 2 through 5. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Yes, please come, Lord. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Right there, that proves the dual nature of man. It proves that we have a soul and we have a body, and we are naked without that body. The soul, when the body dies, is naked. So it's called anthropological hylomorphism, the dual nature of man. We have a soul and a body. We are a soul-body unity. And that started at our conception, okay? That's another doctrine. Sergio emailed about that and asked about it this week, and I sent him all my information on it. It's the Traducian theory. Where does the soul come from? The word comes from tradux, which is the branch of a vine in Latin, okay? The soul is created in the union between a husband and a wife. And we know that because God finished his creation on the sixth day. He's not creating any new souls. And we know that a soul without a body is naked, and therefore that soul came into being at the moment that we were conceived. Everybody see the logic there? There's a lot more. If you want to know about it, I'll email it to you. Anyway, that's where we stand as human beings. We stand in this state, and thank goodness that we have the promise that we're going to be translated to heaven someday. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. Anybody feel that today? I do. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee, an erevon. God does not make mistakes. When he seals you with the Holy Spirit, it is done. Next week is Deuteronomy 7, 17 through 26. What is it by which we are most awed? It's entitled The Great an awesome God. That'll be our 28th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I know everybody wants the marvelous things for you, but most people don't want to have them through you. You're supposed to get out and tell people about Jesus. You're supposed to go out and participate in the gospel presentation to the people of the world in one way or another. Please do that, all right? I've got a poem for you, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. But before I do, I had to really quickly think of a question I forgot to do one this week. So I have a very difficult one. It's all I could think of. 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. Paul says, I left who sick in Miletus? What is his name? Nobody got it. I always try to remember this because this is a great refutation of faith healers. I'm not talking about faith healing. I'm talking about faith healers. They go out and they heal everybody on stage and everybody gets up and walks away. That's not true. Okay. He left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul had his own affliction. He couldn't heal himself. He left Trophimus sick in Miletus for crying out loud. He was an apostle of the Lord and he couldn't heal him. Right? Everybody see that? What did he tell Timothy to do for his stomach afflictions? 
drink a little wine. He was telling him, you got stomach problems, drink a little bit of wine for your stomach. He, all these people, there are others in there, Epaphras. He almost died for the sake of the gospel. Well, why didn't you, faith healer, pick him up and heal him? Because the Lord didn't want it to happen. Have good theology. Believe the Bible as it is in context, not taking little verses out of context and making up all kinds of things that are not true. I believe in faith healing, but not in faith healers. We pray because the Bible tells us to pray for the healing of others. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, or maybe this last week, I have seen people healed. I've seen it right in the projects. I've seen it with my own eyes. Wasn't immediate. Took a week and I come back and they were healed. But I have seen it happen twice. Okay. People that were psychotic. What, what is the, the term? Um, uh, schizophrenic. Two schizophrenic people. I've seen it with my own eyes. They no longer take the medicines and they are as right as rain. That comes from Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, by the way. Anyway, here's a poem for you. The Covenant and the Mercy. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy always. For a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments all their days. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. So to you, I say, he will not be slack with him who hates him. He will him to his face repay. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments to them. You shall be true, which I command you today to observe them just as I am instructing you. Then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them to you. They are no bore that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he to your fathers swore. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also the fruit of your womb bless and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil from the press. The increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock, it is true, in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people, the Lord's special flock, there shall not be a male or a female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none. This word is true of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. So you shall do your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods for that will be a snare to you. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Before we close in prayer, I'd like to... Once again, welcome Jim and Pam, who came from Bradenton today to check us out. And uh, it's wonderful to have you here. And then we also have Dr. and Mabel back. Welcome back to Sarasota. We've missed you. It's been a long summer without you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to enter into your presence and to share in your word and to also just revel in who you are and what you have done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. You are so very good to us. We love you. You just are in ways we can't even imagine. You just heap blessing upon blessing upon us. And Lord, should those favorable blessings be taken away from us and our lives start to go south, just give us enough strength to praise you. I know that with that, we will be content. Just allow us enough strength to praise you, even in our affliction. We do praise you. We love you and we glorify you for who you are. And we do so in the beautiful and exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.